It was a cold October morning in Wilson, Kentucky, when the mutilated body of Nancy Lowe was found on the side of the road. Although some suspects were investigated, no one has been held accountable for the death of my cousin. It is my hope that this podcast will bring us closer to finding Nancy's killer ten years later. The Noah Blackfeather Memorial Hospital is quite a drive from the Swan Estate in Wilson. It's a state-of-the-art medical facility on the edge of Wing County, and will most likely be the last place Paul Swan calls home. As the nurse led me to his private hospital room, he told me they are considering dedicating the hospital to Mr. Swan. Noah Blackfeather was a Native American World War I medic who returned home and opened his own free practice to help those who couldn't pay for medical treatment. Paul Swan opened a grocery store. I was brought to his room. It was more like an entire hospital wing. He had a few rooms dedicated to his possessions, as well as a room just for the flowers and gifts he had been given by the people of Wilson. Across the hall from this room lay a resting Paul Swan. Paul's life for the last decade has been relatively quiet. After the investigation in 2008, he returned to living in public fame and personal obscurity. He also resumed taking his yearly solo hunting trips, driving to far-off places all over the southern and midwestern United States. He would also always return without any murdered game. This pattern continued until earlier this year. In late July, Paul went on a hunting trip to Missouri and did not return for several weeks. His investors became worried about his whereabouts and immediately began searching for him. They would alert authorities who searched all over Missouri looking for Paul. They eventually found him in a field near Belleville. He was covered in ticks and dirt, bleeding out from a gunshot wound to the shoulder and dying of exposure. According to interviews from the rescuing officers, Even though he was incredibly fatigued when they found him, Paul screamed and shouted in protest as they attempted to load him into a helicopter. Even after being treated for his broken shoulder, his gunshot wound, and malnutrition, they still found him to be suffering from fevers and lethargy. After many tests on Paul's blood, the doctors concluded he was suffering from a disease called the Heartland virus, a blood-borne illness transmitted via ticks. Due to the prolonged exposure and Paul's already ill health, the doctors estimated he wouldn't live to see November. Seeing him there on the bed, I would be surprised if he makes it to next week. He was pale, sweaty, teeth gritted in pain, his white blonde hair messy and receding. I thanked Mr. Swan for allowing me to speak with him and tell his side of the story, trying to sound as cordial as possible. He fired back that we wouldn't be speaking about him. He said that the only reason he allowed me to speak with him was because he had heard last week's episode and wanted to clear things up about Mary. Nothing more. I guess Paul Swan listens to this podcast. I was honestly surprised by this. I never considered Paul Swan to be a part of my small listenership. There isn't much else one can do when waiting for the Reaper, he said. Paul stated that yes, the article was true. Mary had joined a small group of kids who, out of a sense of teenage rebellion, decided to call themselves branchers. However, at the time that Mary became part of the small brancher movement, 
It was a little more than an excuse for teenagers to go out into the woods to smoke, drink, and make out. I asked him about the bodies of animals found in the woods around that time, including many house pets. Paul, either out of annoyance or pain, shouted back at me, Have you never heard of roadkill? According to Paul, it's no surprise that dead animals are found in the woods next to a major road. He says they used to get drunk, find animals that had run away and been hit by cars on the road, bring their bodies into the woods, and smoke weed waiting for the owl woman, which always just led to everyone having sex with each other. He stated that during this time, the branchers were just a group of horny kids who wanted to get out of the house and do drugs. But then very odd people started joining the group. These people would wander through the woods at night and come across Mary and the others who were just trying to have a good time. These people really believed in the Owl Woman and wanted to capture her. And once these individuals started planning on luring people into the woods to murder and leave as bait for the beast, Mary left the branchers for good. The article I had read identifying Mary Crane as a possible member was written before her leaving the group, but published after, just as brancher activity was becoming more heinous. I asked how he knew all of this. Paul shook his head, as if it was obvious. He was also a member of the branchers at the time. He had even been identified in that article, but his parents paid handsomely to keep his name out of the paper. This delayed the story being run and made Mary's involvement look much more despicable. All of a sudden, he went silent. I thought he had lost his train of thought, so I asked if he could tell me more about what happened at the Brancher meetings. He shook his head, and he said he was done. I asked him if he wanted to explain more about his life, his decisions, his legacy. Paul gave a dry laugh. He wryly explained that people care too much about their legacy. Good or bad, you can't enjoy whatever legacy you have, because either way, you'll be dead. So why should he give a shit about what people think of him? I shot back, asking if he felt comfortable with his legacy as the possible murderer of my cousin. He waved his hand at the thought, then pointed behind him in the relative direction of Wilson. He said, If you want to talk to your cousin's murderer, you should talk to that ex of hers. He's a real piece of work. Paul then waved his hand at me, as if he was brushing me away, and lay back in his bed. It seems like I've got everything he's willing to give me. I left the hospital, taking another look inside the room full of gifts to Mr. Swan. The flowers sat dry and dying, the gifts unopened, collecting dust. Someone on Twitter asked me about Nancy's friends that weren't co-workers. Since Nancy didn't have social media, or even a phone, it was hard to know exactly how many close friends she really had that I didn't already know about. I do know that because she had moved to Bardstown when she was young, Nancy had to reconnect with a lot of her friends from elementary school, many of whom had changed over the years. One of her friends I do know about was Bridget Horn. She was friends with Nancy when they attended Wilson Elementary, and they reconnected when working at the radio station together. 
Bridget was a summer intern at the time and is now a board operator still working at WEGT. I reached out to her, and she was happy to talk about her friendship with Nancy. I spoke with Bridget at her home in suburban Wilson. We sat in her living room while her husband William made us tea, and their son Tripp drew us with crayon. Such a picturesque life that I had always imagined Nancy attaining. I asked her about how she and Nancy first met. Bridget began to chuckle and leaned in, telling me of their show and tell in kindergarten. The two girls independently brought in large feathers, joking they had seen the owl woman in the woods. Bridget laughs uproariously at this story, remembering that Nancy had called her a liar because she had brought in a peacock feather. So years later, when Nancy saw Bridget fixing a pot of coffee in the radio station break room, the first thing she said to her was, Hey, peacock. That smile became a bitter frown, the silence of Nancy filling the room. A silence William broke as he returned with warm mugs of tea. Bridget then told me about their wild streak when the two were teenagers, which, I'll admit, caught me off guard. After years of being separated, the two had a lot of catching up to do. I remember Nancy saying she was working at the radio station during those late nights, but according to Bridget, the two were often at the crow's nest with fake IDs, teasing men they caught staring at them to buy them free drinks. I must have looked dumbfounded, because Bridget kept repeating that she wasn't lying and that Nancy was an absolute riot. How Nancy would sometimes steal cigarettes and wine from the swan shop after she closed up the store, and the two would smoke and drink in the bed of Brock's truck. I wondered if Brock was Brock Stevenson, and Bridget verified this, saying her and Brock were dating on and off at the time. I continued, inquiring if she was present at the crow's nest on October 3rd, and she rolled her eyes and nodded. I cautiously asked if Ryan Faulkner had hit on her that night. Bridget took a drink of her tea, set it down on the coffee table, and rubbed her eyes. She then said, without looking at me, Ryan is an absolute fucking pig. He was drunk and either didn't remember I was Nancy's friend or didn't care. I asked Bridget about what happened that night, how Ryan started a bar fight with Brock. Bridget shook her head, visibly embarrassed. This was around the time that her and Brock were no longer in a relationship. However, the two would still go out together as friends. Brock had gone to the bathroom, and an already inebriated Ryan stumbled up to her and asked if she was tied down. According to Bridget, that was his exact words. Tied down. She had met Ryan a few times before, but she always had the suspicion that he wasn't too interested in meeting Nancy's friends. He continued asking Bridget if she was in a relationship, and she honestly said she wasn't. It was at that point that Ryan began to reach for her and ask if she wanted a drink on him. She relented and asked him what he thought Nancy would think. Ryan laughed tossing his arm around Bridget's waist, and said barely loud enough for Bridget to hear, She's dead. I asked Bridget to repeat that, and she nodded and began to shiver, confirming that he really said that. She's dead. 
It's at that point that she pushed him off of her, just as Brock returned and began to hold off Ryan. Brock said that Bridget was with him. Ryan called Brock a liar. Punches began to fly. The cops were called. Bridget seemed deeply upset by the whole evening. I asked her if she went to the cops with this information. She nodded emphatically, but said that, if anything, her testimony gave Ryan a stronger alibi. Feeling like I had quite a bit of information, I winded down the conversation by asking her if she knew of any other close friends of Nancy's. She shook her head, saying that although Nancy was friendly, she had a difficult time deeply relating to the common Wilsonian. Bridget could see Nancy wanting desperately to live the way they did, but Nancy saw Wilson for what it was, full of people missing the wood for the trees. She could relate to Nancy in that way. Bridget had hated growing up in Wilson and congratulated me for escaping when I did. I asked her why she had never left, figuring that you can operate a switchboard anywhere. She looked out the window at the tapping of rain coming in and responded, The same reason you came back, I imagine. This is where Nancy is. Then she looked back over at Trip, who was loudly watching cartoons on his iPad, and said, Plus, of course, this is a pretty safe place to raise a kid. As I was preparing to leave, I asked Bridget about Nancy and Hal. I regretted it immediately upon seeing her face turn into a confused frown. I apologized and began to thank her for her time, but she assured me it was all right. She just has a very complicated view of Hal Avery. She says that she had run into the two of them once at the crow's nest. They had a table off to themselves. Neither were drinking alcohol. Her hands warmly placed on top of his. She looked deeply into him, his eyes unable to hold her gaze. Bridget came up to talk to them, and they acted as if their parents walked in on them, blushing and scrambling their hands away from each other. Bridget said she had never seen Nancy so happy, and that Hal was just the perfect gentleman. But after what happened to Paul Swan and Hal doing time for that, it's hard to see Hal the same way she did before. She can't even go back to the crow's nest anymore, out of fear of running into him tending bar. I thanked her for her time and offered to take her out for lunch if she ever wanted some time away from the house. She smiled and thanked me as well. She hadn't had an opportunity to talk about Nancy in years. I'm happy I could do that for her. She hugged me tight, then pleaded, quietly, that if I had the nerve, I should really investigate Ryan. I said I would, even though, well, I never liked talking to Ryan. I don't know how he makes his living talking to people who need help with their lives. He's 40 now and still runs a very successful psychology practice. He still lectures. He's still a serial bachelor who dates students of his and picks up women at the crow's nest. Nancy's murder has seemingly not affected his life whatsoever. So with the information I got from Bridget, I opened our meeting up with a straightforward question. Did he tell Bridget that Nancy was dead on the evening of October 3rd? He was bemused, 
sitting behind his desk. Dead to me, he corrected me. He mentioned that he didn't remember much from that evening, having been so inebriated. This would explain why he handled himself in that manner. But he does remember Bridget being quite drunk as well, which would explain her more than spotty memory of the events of that night. He also reminded me that memory is a funny thing, especially all these years later. Either way, Ryan was confident that no one could pin whatever happened to Nancy on him due to his being at the bar that evening. Perhaps it was my view of the situation, but he almost seemed proud of this. I asked him why he was even at the crow's nest that evening in the first place. This seemed to genuinely upset him. He said that Nancy had broken up with him earlier that day, called him callous and controlling. He found this humorous, as she was the one who was now callously controlling the relationship. Ryan was surprised, as he was usually the one to call things off. He had hoped that gifting her his old pager would make things better, show her that he really cared. But, as he saw it, she was just a born liar and a troublemaker, and wasn't capable of loving someone more than herself. This was extremely difficult to listen to. I think Ryan picked up on that. He said that if I wasn't interested in learning the truth, I shouldn't be asking such painful questions. But he said that whenever Nancy and him talked, she revealed herself to be a deeply sad individual. He mentioned that Nancy never seemed interested in men her age. He was nearly 30 when they started seeing each other. She then had a fling with Hal, a widower, and 44. Ryan felt it was clear she was searching for a father figure, not a romantic partner. He made this connection to the death of her father at such a young age. I was quickly losing grasp of the interview, so I asked him one final thing before leaving. Why did he think Nancy kept receiving messages asking for her to meet at Crow's Nest? Did he think someone there wanted to kill her? He shook his head and corrected me. It didn't tell her to meet at the crow's nest. It told her to meet at nest. I asked him what other nest could the message refer to. Ryan smirked and simply said, The teaching school, of course. National Eastern School of Teaching. N-E-S-T. Ryan had apparently paged her this phrase all the time. Whoever had taken his phone must have just resent an old message to her. But it's quite apparent she never actually made it, he said. I left after that. I feel like I'm getting closer to something. I just can't figure out what it is yet. I have a few more things to check out. Maybe check in with Hal again. If you guys have any suggestions... You can find me on Twitter at Flies Podcast or email me at flyspodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back next week with whatever I find. Okay, so I was done recording this episode when I saw I got another tweet suggesting I check out the area in the woods where Nancy had been found. The idea was unnerving, to say the least. I'd been all over this small town several times, but I'd never been to the scene of the crime. If you're wondering... 
Yes, I did go during the day, but not due to any kind of superstitions, I assure you. Inspecting the scene is much easier by sunlight than by flashlight. But even so, I found it difficult to find exactly where Nancy's body had been discovered. I knew it wasn't too deep into the woods. I knew it was near the main road. But it was deep enough that you could no longer see the road or hear the cars. The thick brush seems to blind those looking into the forest from seeing what is hidden within. And I was admittedly not leaving the road itself. I was hoping to see a clearing from my vantage point, but after about 30 minutes of pacing, I finally had to investigate further. I walked into the woods and tried to find this clearing I had heard about. Honestly, I thought that after all I had read about Nancy's murder site, I would instantly be able to locate it. But my sense of direction became worse the longer I walked, and I kept accidentally walking back out into the woods from where I had begun. The trees were teasing me, these tall, faceless columns of bark would turn me back around from where I came. I think it's because the trees had grown so high that you could barely find the sun to get your bearings. Not that it mattered, considering how overcast it was. I must have been circling the woods for an hour or so. And then I heard it. I had suspected it was just my footsteps, the orange leaves being dragged and kicked, but I halted for a moment and held my breath. And I swear to you, I heard it. I heard her, Nancy, in the distance, in the wind. And she was saying my name. When I hear these reports about voices in the woods, I always pictured it would sound like a yell or a shriek. But this voice... Nancy's voice sounded calm, almost like she was putting syllables together phonetically as if she had never heard my name before and was learning how to say it for the first time. I followed the voice through the woods. Here's a recording of what it sounded like, so you know I'm not lying. definitely where she had been found. It looked just like the crime scene photographs. Just like my nightmares. A small forest clearing. Orange leaves carpeting the ground. And a white mannequin. Laying face down. Like it was making snow angels in the leaves. I never found what was making the sound of her voice. I never really looked. I just ran home. I'm starting to regret this whole podcast idea. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs>